be great. Thank you. Yeah, it's great. Appreciate it. Very kind for an Australian. So, Kiwis applauding. So, um, it really is great to be back again. I was here last year and uh, had the pleasure of meeting a number of you then. Uh, Lynn was with me last year. She uh, was up in Auckland uh, with me last week, but uh, she needed to be back in our pulpit on Sunday. We had Bill Johnson with us the week before, and uh, we've just made a commitment that the week after Bill's been there, either Lynn or I will uh, minister because we just really want to capture what was released when Bill was there. And uh, we had a guy with us this year. His name is Joshua Mills. Some of you will probably have heard of Joshua, but um, there's been this extraordinary thing happening since uh, Joshua really opened something up in the spirit. And uh, so um, I can't remember the exact times and days, so just forgive me, but uh, uh, we've now had four different keyboards playing on their own without anyone actually touching the keyboard and they're playing and there is there is singing going on that is not coming from human beings and uh and that is very difficult for a rational western mind to even comprehend uh including mine uh sometimes my brain is too big uh because it doesn't is able to grasp the simplicity of what god is up to and so so the guys you know they um the first time it happened they thought the keyboard was actually broken and so they sent it off to get service but then they brought another one in and it started playing all by itself as well. And, uh, and then they actually were up in the Dandenongs, which is some hills, not mountains. You've got mountains, we've got hills, um, near Melbourne. And uh, uh, so out in the open uh, and, and the keyboard started to play all by itself as well. And then it happened again yesterday morning in a prayer meeting. Um, so, yeah, pretty amazing stuff. Eh? We serve a, uh, an incredible God. Um, why is he doing it? I have no idea at the minute. If you figure it out, can you let me know? Um, because whilst it's exciting, he's actually trying to say something to us in the process. And uh, so when Bill was with us, we saw, you know, just, um, again, just amazing healings. There was a lady who'd been deaf for 27 years. Uh, she got completely healed and got all the hearing back. Uh, there was a lady who had had food allergies for 30 years and uh, she came up all excited she got completely healed and she tested it out by having uh, toast and then McDonald's and then some other sort of bad food uh, all in the one day and you know just got completely and totally uh, set free from uh, from that um, another story I, this is when I leave here I fly to Sydney and then up to Port Macquarie which is on the north coast of New South Wales and so I've been going to that church for a couple of years and the young man up there he was given the church by his father-in-law and uh, so he was only 32 when he took over and he was freaking out he read one of my books and uh, and rang on the off chance that I might meet up with him and so so I'm he's sort of become a, a father in the faith to him if you like and so uh, so just a couple of weeks ago uh, there was a little two-year old boy uh, who was profoundly deaf and uh, was going to go and get hearing aids that week and so they prayed for him in church and he got completely healed as well so that he doesn't need hearing aids at all uh, which would be good news if you're a mum and a dad of a little two-year-old and to see God do that we serve a very wonderful God who can say amen for me tonight he's he's extraordinary and uh, the, the the amazing thing is that he wants this sort of stuff to happen through your hands um, he, he actually believes that you can be someone that prays for sickness and sees it get healed. Now, um, you know, I'm aware of the power of disappointment in all of this. And so, you know, at, uh, at the risk of highlighting Peter and what's been happening for Peter and Lynn, you know, with his own, with his healing and his, the process that's going on there. One of the things I said to the pastors today is that we've got to learn to uh, be able to see what is true, 
but we actually actually focus on the truth. And so it's true that uh, people do get cancer. It's true that people don't have enough money at times. It's true that we have relationships that go pear-shaped. But the truth is that we've got a God who provides for all of our needs. The truth is that we have a God who is a healing God. The truth is that we have a God who empowers us to forgive. And so, so as Christians, we have to learn this tricky little balance between looking at what is true, but not getting consumed by it and focused on it, but by learning to look at what is the truth. And, uh, and as we learn to look at the truth and focus there, there's a bunch of mysteries in all of this that I cannot explain to you. I have no idea, you know, why some people get healed and others don't. Uh, you know, there were people that we prayed for that were deaf when, when Boo was there. There was about four or five people who got healed from various levels of deafness, but then there were a bunch of people who didn't get healed. I can't explain that to you. This is all I do know is that before we didn't used to pray for anyone to get healed from deafness and we didn't see anyone get healed. But now we're starting to do it. We're seeing people get healed from it. And so, so it's a journey that we're all on. We're all growing up into the possibility of who we are in Christ. And so tonight I want to talk about, um, just take a few moments to think about who are you really? Who, who am I really? Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about the restoration of your identity and what actually happened when you were born again, that it's not just about you going to heaven, but it's actually about us all learning to live here on earth like Jesus lived here on earth. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 19, and uh, we're going to read from verse uh, 1, a story that if you've been around church for a while will be familiar to you. Uh, so he entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be with the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. There are some of you in the room tonight who have heard verse 10 uh, read, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. This scripture has been used by preachers over the years to motivate us to the belief that Jesus came to save people so they wouldn't go to hell and they'd go to heaven. The scripture doesn't actually say that. The word that is in there is the word that, it's not those. In some translations it's translated what. And so this verse says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that or what was lost. And this word, the word lost there uh, is also translated in other parts of the scripture as destroyed. And so Jesus came to seek and to save something that was destroyed. It wasn't someone, it wasn't, it was it's something. And so we have to look at the context to find, try and figure out what is the what or the that, what is the something that Jesus came to seek and to save that was destroyed. I think we can find the answer to it in the context of verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. What Jesus is saying is that when we are saved, our identity is restored to us. In the garden, the identity that, we, that, that the human race had as children of God, as sons of God, was lost through Adam and Eve's sin. 
and salvation. When you were born again, one of the greatest things that happened to you was that your identity as a child of God was restored to you. Here he says, sons of, son of Abraham, because Jesus is yet to die and rise again. But in the New Testament, Paul refers to us as sons of God. Nowhere in the New Testament are we called sinners saved by grace. Although that is a common idea that people have about their identity as Christians. The Bible calls, calls people who are believers in Jesus either saints or sons of God. And so here tonight, you are a saint. That's who you really are. You, really, you are a child of God. You, you really are a child of God. You are a son of God. Your identity has been shaped and formed by a whole bunch of forces from what your mum and dad said about you, what your siblings said about you, what your family said, or your extended family said about you, what teachers said about you, all sorts of people have fed into your sense of who you are. But when we were born again, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that we became a new creation, old things passed away and new things came. And so what, a new, one of the new things that came is that we received a new identity. We are actually children of God. We are called to be like Jesus. Your destiny, my destiny, is to be exactly like Jesus here on the face of the earth. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that Jesus was the firstborn amongst many brethren and that we were predestined to be conformed to his image. Your destiny is to be conformed to the image of Christ. Your destiny is to be a person who loves like Jesus loved, who had peace like Jesus had peace, who had joy like Jesus had peace, who actually released the supernatural power of God to see blind eyes open and deaf ears open. That is our destiny. And what we're doing is we're learning to grow up into that destiny. Just like we grew up as children, we learned to tie our shoelaces, we learned to ride a, ride a push bike, we grew up into all sorts of things. So when we're born again, our identity is restored to us. That which was destroyed through the work in the, that took place in the Garden of Eden, the what or that which was destroyed was their identity, was our identity. And when salvation comes, we step back into our true place. My sin nature has been dealt with and I now have a divine nature. It says that in all sorts of different places. Basically what it's pointing to is the fact that Christ dwells within me. And so I now have a divine nature. You have a divine nature. Jesus lives inside of us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 13 it says, Do you not recognize that Jesus lives inside of you? And one of the problems that Paul was facing was that the New Testament church didn't recognize what had actually taken place when they were born again. What's happened for many of us is that we were born again around a message of don't go to hell, go to heaven, put your hand up, pray a prayer so that you get out of it, get some fire insurance. And so it created inside of us that, that when we were born again, it was about actually escaping hell rather than when we were born again, we actually, Jesus came and dwelt inside of us. I now have a divine nation. Do you not recognize that Christ is in you? Paul says 167 times in his letters, that we are one with Christ, that Christ dwells within us. He's taught, he's 167 times, he references the fact that when we were born again, Jesus came and made his abode in us. Jesus actually promised this in the Gospel of John. He said, if you love me and you follow me, then my Father and I will come and make our abode in you. You are not a normal person. Your identity is not as a normal human being. You are a son of God. You're a child of God. You are a saint. The dilemma, though, is that most of us don't believe that. We think it's a nice idea. And we sort of go, really? I'm not that good. The truth is, none of us are that good, but Jesus inside of us is. 
And, and that's the deal, is that it's about Jesus inside of us. And so what, the, the reason why this is so important to understand, because Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 18, Father, as you have sent me into the world, now I send them into the world. Tomorrow, when you go to your workplace, your school, your university, when you're shopping with people, when you're dropping your kids off at daycare, when you're walking in the neighborhood, wherever it is, you have been sent to those people just like Jesus was sent into the world. You have been sent to them to represent the God of heaven and earth. And you can do that, and I can do that, as we begin to connect with the fact that Christ actually dwells inside of me. Romans chapter 8 and uh, verse 29, uh, is it 29? Verse 19, sorry. Romans 8 and verse 19 uh, says the following when I get there. Romans 8 verse 19, For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. It seems to me that God knows who we are, the devil knows who we are, creation knows who we are, we seem to be the only ones who don't know who we are. We, ha- we haven't actually figured out who we, re- who we really are. I am not what my mother and father told me about who I am. I am not what my teachers told me about who I am. I am not what my circumstances told me about who I am. I am a child of God. And it's only from that place, once I actually begin to grasp this truth and I begin to live from it, then I begin to see supernatural power and supernatural love and grace and generosity released from my life. Because I begin to realize I can actually access Christ who lives inside of me. And so, so one of the, the great privileges that we have is to grow in our recognition that Christ dwells inside of me. And all too often, we judge who we are by our behavior. And this is one of the great hindrances to us actually stepping into all that God has got for us. So if we go to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 12, um, we read the following. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. I'm a social worker by training. When I was uh, doing my social work degree, Christians were nerds. God was a waste of space. Religion was an opiate for the masses, and I had no faith whatsoever. I used to sit on the lawns of Sydney University and uh, be there by myself because I'd learned that I was honey for the bees called uh, Christians who were part of a thing called uh, Scripture Union, and they would come and witness to me. And I actually wanted them to come and witness to me because I wanted to argue with them. I wanted to prove to them that I was right and they were wrong. And unfortunately, I was responsible for arguing a number of them out of their faith because at the end of the day, I I still have in my head all the reasons why I should not be a Christian. I I know all the reasons why this does not make sense. The only problem is that I've had an encounter with God which has trumped all of those reasons that i got inside of my head. So I know by experience that God is real Whereas knowledge, I can, I, can still argue, I can still argue with myself as to why I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing, but it doesn't make any sense because I've had an experience with God. And so, so I, when I was starting to be a social worker, I, I topped my year at university. I got a first-class honours degree, and so I'm a qualified social worker. But I did all the work. God wasn't involved at all. Many of you in the room tonight, you're qualified in some area. You're qualified as a teacher, you're qualified as a carpenter, you're qualified as all sorts of things, qualified as a a personal assistant, accountants, whatever, we're qualified. And we know that we did the work to get qualified. We've been raised in a culture that tells us that our behaviour determines our identity. We were raised in a culture that when we were young and we did the right thing, we were told we were good, and when we did the wrong thing, we were told we were bad. 
So there's a performance bias in our culture. We were told that we were good at sport or we were bad at sport. We were good at learning an instrument, we were bad at learning an instrument. And so what can happen is that our identity, our value, our significance, our worth gets tied into what we do and how we perform. And so we begin to think of ourselves in this way. And yet this scripture says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us. It is God who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And so, so we, we actually don't have to do anything to be like Jesus other than to have faith that Christ dwells within me. And when I pray and when I'm with people, I'm carrying the presence of God and he wants to get out of me. There are rivers of living water that are busting to get out of me. There are rivers of living water that want to spill out of me into the world in which I live. And they are always there and they're always ready to flow. The tap is turned on by my faith. The tap is turned on by my belief that Jesus actually is inside of me and that he is busting to get out. And if I just genuinely believe that when I pray for people, he is going to move out of me and touch their lives and something good is going to happen to them. And the hindrance, one of the great hindrances to this is that we think that it's about our performance that will do that we disqualify ourselves from living as children of God living as saints living as sons of God we disqualify ourselves because we say well surely my sin surely my inability if I haven't prayed enough I haven't read the Bible enough I don't shout at the devil loud enough surely there's something about what I'm doing that's disqualified me no you are not disqualified it is God who has qualified you I am qualified by God himself to be a healer of the sick. I am qualified by God himself to be one of the greatest lovers on the face of the earth so I can love the people around me. I am qualified by God himself to be able to forgive people that hurt me deeply because when I get in touch with the Jesus who's inside of me, his life begins to flow through me and I begin to understand that that's who I really am. And so one of the great hindrances to us living in this space is that we think that it's more about us than it is about what God has done. We find this illustrated as well, I was saying this today to the pastors, that out of the story, we call it the prodigal son, I call it the story of the father and his two boys. But both of those boys thought that their father's love for them was based on their behaviour. The younger son said, I am not worthy to be your son. He thought that he should be put in the position of being a servant because he had sinned and his behaviour had disqualified him from his sonship. The, father, he, 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 the son thought up a great repentance speech in the pig pen, but the father didn't want to hear the repentance speech. The father said, you've always been my son, because it's my blood that's in your veins that makes you my son. It's not your behaviour that makes you my son. I'm restoring you to sonship by putting a, a, a cloak on you and putting a ring on your finger, all those things that we know. The elder brother felt that the father's love for him should have been based on his behaviour as well. He said, look, I've been with you always. I've done all the right things. Why aren't you treating me like you're treating this younger son who's done all these things that are wrong to you? He was saying, my behaviour has qualified me for you to love me. And he turns to him and says, I don't get it. You've been with me always and everything that I have belongs to you because it's about the blood that's in your veins. It's not about your behaviour. And one of the things that we all wrestle with when it comes to our identity being restored, when it comes to discovering who we really are, is that we're so used to defining ourselves by our behaviour because that's how everybody else has defined us. 
Everybody else has defined us as you're good at that, you're not so good at that. And so we define ourselves that way. We put our identity in external things rather than having our identity shaped and formed by the one who lives internally inside of us. Interestingly to me in the story of the father and his two boys is that he was actually, his audience, if you go back to the beginning of the chapter, his audience is sinners and Pharisees. And so he's telling the story and he's using an illustration that the, the audience can identify with. He's the, the younger son is, the, or is spoken to the audience of the sinners and the older son is actually directed to the Pharisees because the Pharisees think that their relationship with God is based on their behaviour as well. They thought that the law was what qualified them to be accepted by God. It intrigues me that Jesus finished off the story about the acceptance of the younger son and that he was restored to sonship. But he never finishes the story. We never know in this story what the older brother did with the information that the father gave to him. I think it's left open-ended because Jesus was actually telling this story for the Pharisees. We preach it as though it's a story about sinners coming to faith, which it is, and it has its place. But I think Jesus was actually, his primary target in the audience was the Pharisees. Because he was wanting to say to the Pharisees, you have got it completely wrong. You think it's all about your behaviour, and the older brother is the one that is representative of you. Now you write the end of the story. Are you going to walk away from behavior defining your relationship with God and step into a place where it is actually something completely different to what you've always thought it was and I think that he was because this is the way of the kingdom the way of the kingdom when God wants us to learn something he puts us in a position where we are to ask lots of questions we've been raised in an education system that wants to tell us everything that we should know but that's not the way of the kingdom this is why Jesus taught parables because he actually wants he tells stories that cause us to ask questions if we were teaching, if we were Jesus, we would actually just tell everybody what, what they need to know. That's how our education system works. But that's not how the education system of the kingdom works. The education system of the kingdom works by people asking questions. And so he was wanting the Pharisees to ask questions about, flip, if we actually think our relationship with the Father is through behaviour and he's saying that it's not, then what have we got to change? I think I would want to suggest to you as gently as I possibly can as a leader that the Western church is living predominantly like the Pharisees lived. There's some research that's recently come out of the USA from the Barna Research Group and they do a lot of research around Christians and the church. And they ask people who were self-declared believers in Jesus how do you measure your spirituality? How do you measure your relationship with the Lord? And 81% of them said they measure it by their behaviour. 81% of Christians in America say, my relationship with God and his relationship with me is based on how I behave. And yet the scripture tells us that that is not how God relates to us at all. He is not relating to us on our behaviour. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 11, it says, to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The book of Romans is actually a book that says stop being sin conscious, stop being focused on your behaviour and be sun conscious. Be conscious of who you actually are in me. That your identity is not shaped and formed by your behaviour, your identity is shaped and formed by the one who lives inside of you. 
And the problem for so many of us is that, that we've been caught up, and, and, and I'm sort of qualified to say this because I used to do this as a church leader. I think church leaders, we have actually, un, unaware, we've, in an unaware way, we have created an ecosystem inside of church life where people think that if they just behave right, God's going to be happy with them. God is always happy with you. God, he, the Bible says that he does not count your, trespass, your transgressions against you. The Bible says that all of your trespasses have been forgiven. God is not focused on your sin. He's focused on your sonship. He's focused on your righteousness. He's focused on calling you up into who you are, not calling you out for the wrong that you do. When you feel that, when you feel the Lord speaking to you about the things that we know are sin in our lives, he's not focusing on that so that you feel guilty and ashamed and condemned. He's shining light on that to say, why are you living at a lower level to what you could actually live at? He's offering you an invitation to allow him to help you to stop doing what is wrong and start to live like he lives. That you would be able, that he, by his grace and by the work of the Spirit, you would actually be able to step into everything that he's called you to be. But because we've got this, we've, we've got this whole approach to our spirituality that is about managing behavior, we've got caught up in a system that is robbing us of our true identity. And so for all of us, we actually have to stop and think, what does this mean? Not only for us, but the whole of creation, the whole world that we live in. The people of Rangiora, the people of Christchurch, the people of this area are waiting for us to wake up to who we really are. That I am a child of God. I am a saint. I am not a sinner saved by grace. And because, Jesus, do you not recognize that Christ dwells inside of you? Don't you recognize what you carry? Don't you recognize who you are? And to stop looking at the things that would destroy and take us away from who God is calling us to be. So one of the questions that we've got to ask ourselves is how did we get here? How did this actually happen? And there's a whole bunch of reasons as to how we got here and I was unpacking some of those, well, my insights into it anyway with the pastors today. But tonight I want to focus just on one of those reasons so that it can help you as you go away to go on your own journey of am I going to start to live out of who I really am or am I going to continue to live out of what everybody else has told me about who I really am? So Matthew chapter 28, um, if you've got a Bible, we'll turn there together. Um, again, verses that you're familiar with if you've been around church life for a while. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I want to just focus in on the words, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The word observe or obey, depending on which translation of the Bible you're reading, can be translated in the Greek, it expands out to mean guard from loss by keeping your eye upon. So Jesus is saying, when you're making disciples, the one thing that I want you to consistently teach about is to guard from loss by keeping your eye upon all that I have commanded you. And so what we look at is really important. So when it comes to your identity, are you looking at what everybody else has told you about you? Are you looking at what your, the car that you drive, the house you live in, the job that you've got, your position in the church? Is that defining your identity? Or are you actually looking at, no, my identity is defined by the fact that Christ dwells inside of me and I am a child of God. And so our, the, the, our, the behavioral orientation of our culture continually pulls our eye away from guarding from loss by keeping my eye upon all that I have commanded you. 
The word I is really important in here. Unfortunately for many of us, and including me, until I've sort of gone on this journey with the Lord, we've tended to think about this as referring to, at a minimum, the Ten Commandments, probably more importantly, the Two Great Commandments, because Jesus said if we follow the Two Great Commandments, everything would work out. But I want to suggest to you tonight that those are the commandments that were put in place to live under the Old Covenant. They're not the commandment that was put in place to live under the New Covenant. Jesus actually gave us his own commandment. Teach them to guard from loss by keeping their eye upon all that I have commanded you. So in John chapter 15, um, we read the following in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. In verse 17, this I command you, that you love one another. And then over in John chapter 13, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's a new commandment. So we've got to ask ourselves the question, if it's a new commandment, there's some new information in here that we've never heard before. So what is that new piece of information? This is Jesus' commandment. Guard from loss by keeping your eye upon all that I have commanded you. What he has commanded us is to love one another even as I have loved you. So the new commandment is to love one another even as I have loved you. What's the new piece of information? The new piece of information is even as I have loved you. This has never turned up in any of the commandments before. In the two great commandments, it's love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, strength, and then to love one another as you love yourself. But it's like everything else underneath the old covenant. It's about my effort. It's about my strength. It's about me trying to do what I can do. It's about the law. It's about ticking boxes. It's about behavior. But this commandment is actually based on the knowledge of how much God loves us. So guard from loss by keeping your eye upon how much you are loved by God so you love others well. That's what Jesus was saying. The thing that we meant to focus on, the, the core of our spirituality, the thing that we are meant to keep coming back to again and again and again is to guard from loss by keeping our eye upon how much God loves us so that we can love other people well. Now, when it comes to knowing how much God loves us, we know that in two places. We know it in our head and we know it in our heart. And most of us, because we've been trained under a Grecian education system, we think if we know it in our head, we know it. But the truth is that we don't, because the seed of our heart is the greater place of knowledge. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 19 says, To know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. That Greek word to know there means to know by experience and encounter. So to know by experience and encounter the love of Christ, which surpasses head knowledge, so that you might be filled up to the fullness of God. That same Greek word turns up in John chapter 8, 32, where it says to know the truth and the truth will set you free. Not to know, this is why Christians get, get frustrated with their Christian life because they think, well, I know that I should forgive and I know that God loves me, but it's not working. Why isn't it? Well, it's because they've missed the fact that that Greek word there is to know by experience and encounter the truth. And the truth is a person, it's not a set of principles. And so because we've got caught up in managing our behavior, we think the truth is if I just do all the right things, and if I know all the right things, then I'll be set free. But people aren't experiencing freedom. 
The reason they're not experiencing freedom is because it's to know by experience and encounter the truth who is a person, not a set of principles. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. So to know by experience and encounter the truth, Jesus, so that you can be set free. It's actually ongoing encounters and experiences with God. That's why the worship tonight was so important for all of us, because in that worship, we can bring into this worship, when you come together to worship like this, there are experiences and encounters with God that are waiting for us. And, and we need to actually to understand we can come before the throne of grace and bring to him the things that we need to have experience and encounter over. Let me suggest this to you. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4 that perfect love casts out all fear. So if you have fear in your life, you don't have a deep enough revelation of the love of God. It's a very simple equation. If you have fear in your life, so if, you're, if you have fear, other than fear of spiders or you know, fear of heights, which is pretty natural fears, but, but if you're afraid of what people think about you, if you're afraid that you're going to go broke, if you're afraid of, uh, you know, that you're going to be misunderstood, you're afraid that you're going to be rejected, those, those sorts of fears, those fears are meant to be dealt with by the love of God. And so they're dealt with not by knowing in your head. This is why people go, yeah, but I know that God loves me, but my life still isn't working out. Yeah, I, what I want to say is that it's in your heart where you need to have an experience with it. See, in the garden, what happened was that fear and shame came into the heart of mankind. Fear and shame, they got, became afraid of God. God hadn't changed. They were the ones that had changed. God was still the loving father. Fear came into their world and shame came into their world. They covered themselves. And now we all wrestle with fear and shame. We all wrestle with being afraid of what people are going to say, what they think, all those things that I've already said. And so if that fear is there, it means that you have yet to have a deep enough experience and encounter with the love of God to deal with that fear. And so when you come into the presence of God like we did tonight in worship or in your own worship time, in your own relationship with God, one of the things the Lord wants us to do is to actually bring that fear before him and say, Lord, I want to have an experience and encounter with your love that sets me free from this. Guard from loss by keeping your eye on how much you are loved by God so you can love others well. One of the reasons why we don't love others well is because fear and shame keeps us separated from people. I'm afraid of getting too close because they might hurt me. I feel ashamed that they're not going to believe in me. If they actually knew who I really was, they may not love me. And so I'm going to hide my shame and not talk about it, which just makes the shame even worse. And so the fear and shame gets inside of us and, and we, 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 we lose sight of who we really are because we begin to allow the fear and shame to identify and define who we are because that's what's driving our behaviour. But the, the thing that Jesus wanted to say to us is that your identity is secure as a child of God. I have qualified you, God has qualified you to be an inheritor of the saints, like the saints. It is God, that is done and dusted. You are a child of God. Your behavior does not disqualify you from being a child of God. Your behavior does not disqualify you from being a saint. And what happens is that we put our identity inside of our behavior. And when we do that, we disqualify ourselves from living inside of this incredible place that God has called us to live inside of. And so the way that we overcome that is to guard from loss by keeping our eye on how much we're loved by God so that we can love others well. And it's in those places of fear. God actually wants to come to your fear and come to your shame. He wants to come to those places where you're not doing so well, where you are critical, where you're judgmental, where you're resentful, where you're bitter, where you're discouraged. 
He's already inside of you anyway, so all of your circumstances and attitudes or thoughts are in him anyway. He's, he's not embarrassed by this. He's not overwhelmed by this. He is not critical of it. He loves you so much he wants to set you free from it. To know the truth so that you might set, be set free. It, it's, he, he actually wants to come into those parts of our lives. And when we know that I'm a son, it, it's like the younger son disqualified himself because he said, I'm not worthy and that's where we start, where we can live so easily as well. Or else we try and be worthy through our behaviour like the older brother. And so I want to say to you here tonight that you are, who you really are is a child of God. And that the opportunity that lies before all of us is to grow up into that. And one of the ways that we need to grow up into that is to understand that our behaviour does not disqualify us. Because when we disqualify ourselves, everybody around us is missing out. When you disqualify yourself on the basis of fear and shame, your neighbours, your workmates, your school friends, your university colleagues, the people that you go to playgroups with, they're missing out because you're presenting yourself on the basis of the identity that's been shaped by your, what others have said and what you think about your behaviour rather than presenting yourself as a child of God. The whole earth is waiting for us to figure out who we really are. Do you not recognize that Christ dwells within you? It's a really powerful question from 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5. Don't you recognize this? That Jesus, this is the mystery, that Christ, the hope of glory, dwells inside of me. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives inside of me. In the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. As I said, 167 times Paul says this. He constantly is wanting to reference the new, new believers, the new church, Testament church, to who they are in Christ. Because it's from there that we can begin to introduce the kindness and the mercy and the life and the love of God. So for me, I think I told this story last year. I'll finish with this story. But um, back in 2005, I, I'll be forever grateful to New Zealand uh, because you've given uh, birth to Hamish and Di Devet, who live up in Auckland and they're my very good friends. And, and so in 2000, at the end of 2004, I became aware of four very powerful fears in my life. The fear of rejection, the fear of being misunderstood, the fear of failure, and uh, the fear of being taken advantage of. And the Lord started to speak to me about those fears. And as I began to listen to him, I began to see that they ran all through my life. And they were a very, uh, very significant part of how I protected myself. And how as a leader I would use power and control. I'd use the strength of my choleric temperament. I'd use the agility of my mind to keep my world safe. And I wasn't loving people as well as I could. And so, so the Lord wanted to set me free from that because he wanted me to learn how to love well because I believe he wants the congregation that I lead to love well because I'm the primary gatekeeper into that place. That's the privilege that I hold because of the gift that's on my life. And, and so as the Lord began to speak to me about my fear, I realized that he was wanting to set me free from it. And if I had that fear, as I said before, perfect love casts out all fear. I don't have a deep enough revelation of the love of God. That's what I need to go after. So I began to seek the Lord about that. I knew that as I did this, that I was going to come unstuck emotionally. I'd walk with the Lord long enough to know that if he was going to really deliver me from this stuff, life was going to get difficult and challenging. So by April of 2005, there were two Sunday mornings in a row where I was lying, in my, lying on my bed in a fetal position, crying my eyes out because I felt that no one would be at church. Fear is false expectations appearing real. I look back on it now and I think, what was wrong with me? What was wrong with me was that I had believed certain things about myself and my identity that where I needed to protect myself from failing and from being rejected. 
and from being misunderstood and being taken advantage of. It, it was connected to my childhood and the way that I was raised and how I stayed safe in my childhood and I managed my emotional world that I didn't go, to, didn't go mad. And so, so the Lord is, is speaking to me about all of this. And I, I thought, you know, when I was crying on my bed in a fetal position, I'd hit the bottom. But it was just some ledges on the way down to the bottom. And, uh, and, I, and so I just I fell into this place of, God, I've got to have an encounter with your love. And so I came here to New Zealand for two weeks because I wasn't doing so well in June of 2005. And I connected with Greg Burson, who's a friend of mine, and then with Hamish and I. And, and they led me through a process of prayer and imagination and encounter with God. And, and I had this amazing encounter with the love of God standing beside a tree at Piha in the middle of winter feeling freezing cold. And God turned up and I wept and I wept and I wept. And from that day on, I have understood that I'm loved because I breathe. It's got nothing to do with me. I'm loved because he is love. It's who he is. It's not what I do. And his love for me is not based on my behavior, it's based on his character. And so now that I know the love of God by experience, to know the love of Christ by experience and encounter, which surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled up to the fullness of God, because I know that, I'm able to live in this place of knowing I actually am a saint. I, I am one of the most incredible people that walks on the face of the earth. I'm an amazing human being. And I carry answers for people that are extraordinary. And it's not because I'm boasting, it's because of the one who lives inside of me. And I want to give him full reign. I want to let him get out. And I'll only let him get out if that's how I see myself. If I begin to disqualify myself on the basis of my bad behaviour, that will never happen. And then people won't get healed and the church that I lead wouldn't be what it is today. With literally hundreds of people, probably getting into the thousand now, who are going out and praying for people and seeing them healed in schools and universities and workplaces because we've actually decided to guard from loss by keeping our eye on how much we're loved by God so that we can love others well. Healing is released by compassion. Power encounters are released by compassion. Compassion is love in action. And so because I know how much I'm loved, I'm able to give that love away. So my final thought for you tonight is that if there is fear in your life and if there is shame in your life, then it's probable that you're not going to be loving other people well because you'll be looking after yourself and protecting yourself more than you will be thinking about them. And I would want to suggest to you that there is an opportunity that lies before you in the coming months that if you'll just bring that stuff to the Lord, he will come with love to you and he will come and set you free from that. And from that point, once you begin to actually realize who you are and who he is in you, anything's possible. It all begins to open up. But the core we've discovered for all of this for us is this issue of identity. We actually have to understand who I really am and what happened when I was born again. When I was born again, my, my salvation, salvation has come to this household because he too is a son of Abraham. When salvation came to my household, I became a son of God. And nobody can take that away from me. I cannot live in it, but nobody can take it away from me. It's mine, and I'm there. I have to cultivate it. So let's all stand together tonight as we come to a close. So I want you just in your own heart um, to think about places where you might have shame or where you might have fear. I, I want you to think in your own heart about where you've allowed your identity to be defined by your behavior 
where you feel unworthy to be used by God. You, your, your sense of, I, I'm only qualified if I get enough things right. I want you to be able to focus on that and, and I want you to, to consider, you may not be ready to do this, but if you are, I want you to consider beginning to see that that is a lie. That you are not disqualified. Don't be like the younger son or the older son for the father. He's saying to them, your behaviour is not why you're my kids, it's the blood that's in your veins. And I want you to think about whether you would be courageous enough to actually bring your fear, bring your shame, bring your lack of worth before the throne of grace and and just say, Lord, I, I don't want to live with this anymore. I want to be free from it for my own sake, but also for the sake of everybody around me, because I actually want to start to learn to live in my true identity and with who I really am. Now, if you're not ready to do that tonight, I, I totally get that and I totally understand it. But I would want you to go away and think about what's stopping you from being ready to do that. If you are ready to do that, that's fantastic. And if you've already done that, then continue on the journey because it's a lifetime. It's a lifetime of discovery. But I do just want to finish by praying tonight for those who are ready or who want to say, Lord, would you help me with my fear? Would you help me with my shame? Would you help me to stop disqualifying myself on the basis of behavior? So, Father, I ask tonight in Jesus' name that the power of the Holy Spirit would enable and accelerate our journey into living as children of God to living as saints, to living as sons of God. I pray, Lord, that over the coming weeks and months, people would have encounters with the love of God that disempowers fear and that destroys shame. I thank you, Lord, that when we were born again, our identity was changed at that point, and you're now teaching us how to grow up into that identity how to secure it and how to live in it. And so I pray for those lessons to rapidly mature in our hearts. I pray for an acceleration, Lord, inside of the hearts of people that are wanting to go on this journey. That, Lord, that we would recognize that we are the sons of God and that our role in the earth, Lord, is to bring your glory to the people around us. That they would be, when we pray for them, kindness and mercy and healing and redemption and salvation comes to them because rivers of living water bust out of us and pour into them. So, Lord, I ask that you'd help each of us to go the journey. Help us to continue to pursue growing up in you. And help us, Lord, to understand. Help us, Lord, to know deep in, deep, deep, deep in our hearts that you have qualified us and nothing can take that away. I thank you, Lord, for an explosion of supernatural activity in the life of this congregation, an explosion of supernatural activity in the lives of individuals. That love, Lord, would just flourish in this place so that the whole world would know that this is a community of God's people. Thanks, Jesus. Amen.
Thanks, everyone, for the privilege of being with you this weekend. And thanks for looking after me so well. It's been really great.